Why don't you guys open the book, your Bibles, to the book of Acts. That's where we're at, book of Acts. We have, uh, a few weeks ago, started a brand new series uh, going through this book, and we're just looking at every chapter, every verse. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. If you guys don't own one, uh, go ahead, keep that. It's our gift to you guys. So we're going to continue. I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory. Um, we're going to read, really, for the most part, and look at a sermon. We're going to look at a message that is uh, re- uh, detailed for us in the book of Acts, chapter 2. It's, uh, it's a message actually uh, given by a guy by the name of Peter, if you're familiar at all with the Bible storyline, especially in the New Testament. You know, there's a guy named Peter. Peter was a guy that oftentimes got himself into trouble and would say things that he would later regret, no doubt. And, uh, but we see on this day a really uniquely different Peter. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, and he's actually responding to events that took place, um, what we looked at last week, um, on the day of Pentecost. And there are three main phenomenon that happen. And if you are in any way, shape, or form familiar with the story, this particular story of the Bible, you know that the three phenomenon were one, um, there was this rushing mighty wind, or the sound of a rushing mighty wind that took place. The second phenomenon was they, ha- was they all had these uh, tongues of fire resting on top of their head. Again, I know, strange. If you show up at church and everybody had tongues of fire in their head, that'd be a really strange act, uh, which would absolutely need some form of explanation. So the third phenomenon was they all spoke in unknown languages, unknown to most of the people there, but known to some of the people that were there. So uh, they spoke in what the Bible describes as unknown or languages or tongues or glossolalia, which is the actual Greek word that was used there. So what happens was uh, there was a question that was raised by the people that were observing all this scenario that was going on, this phenomenon. And the question was, what in the world's happening? And so what we see now is Peter standing up and responding. And before I jump in to read the story, which we'll all read together, is... What makes this so unique, and I won't really spend a lot of time talking about this because I can make a whole message out of this already, but um, the fact of the matter is, is this is a radically different Peter because literally if you trace the storyline in the book of Acts or really even the gospel accounts, uh, 51 or so days prior, uh, the Peter that you would have been introduced to was a Peter that was cowardly. It was a Peter that on the night that Jesus, when he was betrayed, actually denied Jesus three times. Um, the final time in which Peter denied him, it actually says that Peter was swearing that he did not know Jesus. And we read that sometimes we think he was saying four-letter words. Peter was not saying four-letter words. What Peter was doing is he was basically making the ultimate oath. He was saying, I swear by the name of Yahweh, I do not know this Yeshua, this Jesus. I don't know Jesus. He's basically making this oath, proclaiming. In other words, Peter was straight up denying Jesus, all right? This Peter we see on the day of Pentecost that we're going to read his message is a radically different, transformed Peter. This Peter is not a cowardly Peter. This is a Peter that's filled with boldness. This is a Peter that does not have a loss of words to say. This is a Peter that has a brand new vocabulary, speech, language, because at the end of the day, the reason why is because we have a God that makes all things new. We have a God that does not necessarily keep us locked in our past. This is really good news. Because if you're somebody in any way, shape, or form that you have felt as if your past has been set, the trajectory is fixed, there's no way out of that background, that past, that brokenness, that sin, that defilement, that cowardliness, whatever it is, the good news is there's way to out. There's freedom. Jesus makes all things new. And this is what we see, first and foremost, about this Peter. He's standing up. He's bold. He's 
unmovable. He's powerful. And it's all simply because Jesus has changed him. Jesus has made him brand new. So Peter stands up and he begins to respond to the crowd that's asking him, what in the world's going on? The accusation they basically lead into is they're like, it looks like all you guys are drunk. And Peter uh, leads into his response by saying, I'm not drunk. So we're going to all respond and read the passage together. And the way that we're going to do this is Peter stood up. We're also going to all stand. And our standing is basically going to be a way of showing honor to God as well as to God's word. So why don't we all stand? Way of transitioning our heart to just simply being uh, sitting to listening, responding. So I'll begin at verse 14. We're going to cover kind of a larger passage of scripture from verse 14 down to verse 41. I think it reads a little bit quick though because of the content but just go ahead and listen to it if you're unfamiliar with this just focus your mind think about it listen to the storyline as peter responds to these people that are asking these questions what in the world's going on by way of these three strange phenomenon here's peter's response verse 14 he says this then peter stood up with the 11 and he lifted up his voice and he addressed them saying men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, This is not stopped necessarily a lot of people. Oftentimes in the past, Peter could have said, but it's 5 o'clock somewhere. But he doesn't. He just continues to say, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We are not drunk. You are assuming wrong. Something else is going on here that is profoundly definitive about what God's about to do. And he goes on to say, For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the latter days, it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And on every, uh, and, and even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit And they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens, and signs on the earth below, and blood, and fire, and vapor, and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And great and magnificent is that day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definitive plan or the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and you killed with hands that were law- by lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and that he was buried and that his tomb is here with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of his Holy Spirit. He has poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing a reference to the phenomenon that these guys were asking questions about. Then Peter says in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and King, or Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter then said, Repent, all of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this uh, crooked generation. So those who received his word, they were baptized, and they were added to that company that day, about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. So God, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes. God, let your word as it's already been spoken. This is your word. We, God, want to give our hearty amen to it. And yet, God, we also just simply say that we don't want this to just simply be a mental exercise. God, we want our hearts changed. We don't want just simple superficiality. God, we want you to transform and remake us into into renewed people. God, have your way, have your work accomplished in us. Do for us, God, what we cannot do for ourselves. We need you, Jesus. We need you to change our hearts. We need you to rescue us. And that's what we submit our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and everything, God, to you. We just say, Lord, would you be the king over our lives? We commit this time in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can all be seated. So... We're going to basically just take a look at two things here this morning, and we'll kind of wrap this up, and then we'll spend some time just responding. The two things that we'll basically take a look at are, first of all, Peter's response, or if you want to think of it this way, or subheading to this, is this is Peter's explanation of the scene. Again, this is what we already referenced. This is a response to the phenomenon that was going on on the day of Pentecost. And again, if you guys were not here last week, I went into great detail explaining what Pentecost is and the significance of it and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, this is a response uh, from Peter to those that are wondering what in the world is going on? Why are you guys going crazy in this particular setting? Peter's response is, we're not actually going crazy in the way that you guys assume. This is something entirely different that's happening. So first of all, we'll take a look at that. The second thing we'll take a look at is the crowd's response, or another way, a subheading into that, is really their entrance into the story. So if you think of it this way, the book of Acts is this narrative. It's this uh, long storyline that depicts uh, the birth or the beginning of this brand new movement that God is basically forming out of ancient Israel. So in other words, Israel was this community of people that followed Yahweh. They were waiting for Yahweh to move, waiting for God to bring restoration. Part of that restoration, the way that restoration was going to begin to happen, was God made these promises throughout the Old Testament. The promise basically had to do with a king, and it had to do with God's presence, God's spirit 
working in conjunction, conjunction or, or uh, uh, in collusion with the king to do something brand new, to bring healing, to bring wholeness. And so really what Peter's basically describing is this whole Old Testament scheme of promises is actually being fulfilled through Jesus. And we're to tell you all about that. That's really what Peter, for the most part, is describing. So in other words, the final closing of Peter's message or sermon or response, however you want to think about it, is basically an invitation. It's an invitation to leave behind their old, superficial, broken, destroyed, sin-filled storylines or narratives and to enter into the story of God, into, into the story of God that brings healing and wholeness and forgiveness and righteousness in exchange for unrighteousness, healing in exchange for the, uh, destruction and brokenness, order in exchange for our chaos. And this is really the whole procession throughout the entire book of Acts. We see God's spirit beginning to move, working, breaking out, and bringing healing where there was nothing but brokenness. Bringing order where there was chaos. This is really what the whole book of Acts is about. So, in other words, what Peter is about to describe is going to set the stage, really for the most part, for the rest of the book of Acts. So, in other words, this message from Peter is really central to everything else that's about to follow. So, let's first of all take a look at Peter's response, or in other words, his explanation of this scene. And what Peter does, basically, is gives kind of a three-part response. His response is kind of in three sections, and... I'll highlight that in this nice little chart that I did for you guys. Did a little chart last week. If you guys weren't here, some of you guys were like, I really like charts. I like charts too. I'm kind of into them. I'm a graphical type of a person, I think, in images. So this is really helpful for me. So if it's helpful for you, great. If it's not, sorry. But point of the matter is these are three different ways in which Peter kind of outlines his response. So first of which is each one of these kind of builds upon itself. In other words, Peter responds to this community of people to whom he's addressing. First little bit of section, Peter describes them as men of Judea. So it's a very impersonal response by saying, hey, men of Judea, men of this region, I'm going to respond to you. And really that's from verses 14 to 21. But what he does is he refers to an Old Testament passage. And this is a really the, one of the most important points that Peter's about to address. Because again, the question that these people are asking is what's going on? You guys are gathered together. There's 120 of you. Some strange things are taking place that are inexplicable. There's tongues of fire on people's head. You guys are speaking unknown languages. Uh, there's the sound of this ready, uh, rushing mighty wind that's coming out of your gig. What's happening here? What's taking place? And Peter's about to say, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And really what's happening is all connected to this constant flow from the Old Testament story of God. In other words, what Peter's basically describing, if you want to think of it in this type of perspective, Peter's saying what's happening right now is God's narrative, God's story has really invaded our lives. God has basically hijacked our lives. He's hijacked this movement, and God's beginning to take charge. Question is, what does it look like when God takes charge? Let me ask this question in a different way. What does it look like when Hitler takes charge? What does it look like when Putin takes charge? What does it look like when a world despot takes charge? What does it look like when an Assad takes charge? What does it look like when you take charge? What does it look like when one of us, these autonomous beings we call humans, when we take charge? For the most part, if you follow the line of how we take charge, of how we govern, at some point, some form of brokenness and destruction is introduced into the storyline. Would you agree? 
Because we're capable of governing ourselves. We're capable of really organizing our lives in such a way where it brings forth life and wholeness and healing, not only for ourselves, but for others around us. So the question is, what does it look like when Yahweh takes charge? Well, it looks exactly like the gospel account. It looks exactly like the book of Acts. It looks like blind eyed people being given sight. It looks like people that were once leprous and for the most part a pariah. They were outcasts. They were separated from the community, being brought back into the community because they have been made whole. It looks like prostitutes being cleansed. It looks like people that should be stoned not being stoned. It looks like outcasts being given a home. That's what it looks like when God takes, when God takes charge. So this is what's happening. Peter's basically saying, you guys are wondering what's taking place here right now. Yes, there's strange phenomena, but here's what's happening. It's linking into this greater narrative, this greater storyline from the Old Testament, in particular the story of the book of Joel. So I'm not going to go in and read through it again, but two things just to think about and to consider. One, he describes that this is that which in the latter days God promised. So and again, it links into this long hope that God would one day re-enter into the story. Now, to understand this, you've got to go back a little bit into the backstory of the people of Israel. So prior to this uh, time period, and again, this thing about it this way, this is 2,000 years ago, Israel as a nation are, for the most part, an occupied nation. All right, Occupied by whom? Does anybody know who Israel was occupied for a century? You guys all should know this. Good, Romans. The Romans basically were the occupying world, military, economic, superpower uh, that was oppressing the Jewish people. So they not, were not able to actually act as and live as a free nation. They were basically an oppressed people group. But how did they get to that particular spot in their lineage, in their history? Again, you go back several generations prior to that, you realize they were a nation that was called by God to be free. But what happened was, rather than Israel serving, loving, giving themselves to God, they served and loved false gods. They served and loved and devoted themselves to false kingdoms and false hopes. And what happened was, they became enslaved. So in the long history of Israel, they end up going away to Babylon. They had this great temple that they would go worship God in the entire process of them being exiled from their land. The temple that they would use was burned to the ground, was destroyed and crushed. And again, the destruction of the temple was not just simply the destruction of brick and mortar. It was the destruction of an icon. It was the destruction of something that was emblematic for the people of Israel as a whole. Much to the same way when the world tw uh, tw uh, twin towers were destroyed in our country, it was not just simply the destruction of brick and mortar. All right? It was the destruction of the attempt to destroy really the heart, the soul of capitalism in America. All right? So that's why it wasn't just simply a sad day because buildings fell. It was a sad day because the symbol would be like destroying the uh, Lady Liberty. All right? The idea is something bigger behind us. But now Israel is back in the land. But even though they're back in the land, they're an oppressed people group. So they have this long hope that one day God is going to restore them as a nation. They're going to have a king again, and this king's going to rule over them, and this king's going to be a good king, and this king's going to be connected to God's spirit, and it's going to bring liberty and hope and life and healing and fruitfulness and all of these things. They had these great hopes. And not only that, but this king was going to be in the lineage of a guy by the name of David. So if you're familiar at all with the ancient history of the Jewish people, you know that the greatest king, 
kind of like identifying, you know, Abraham Lincoln or, you know, George Washington, somebody that was sort of iconic within their history. David was basically the quintessential, the greatest, the most uh, remarkable king of Israel's history. So whenever Jews were to think about the glory days, all right, whenever they would reminisce or they'd be in history class learning Jewish history, the teacher would be like, look, we have a glory day period, the glory day period, the high watermark of Jewish history was all under the reign of this guy by the name of King David. I've said this before, like if you ever went to Israel, you would know that they have such as great reverence for David, great respect for David, because everywhere you go, everything's named like after King David, like King David Bar, King David Nightclub, King David Grocery Store, King David Liquor Store, King David Surf Shop, everything's named King David because such high regard for King David. But God made this promise that one of these days, I'm going to bring a king, and he's going to rule over you guys, and it's going to be from the lineage of David, and my spirit will be upon him. So this is all in the backstory of every Jewish mind that's hearing this. And so what Peter's saying is that what's happening right now is God's spirit is being released. This is the latter days. Now, one thing i got to say about the latter days, the phrase last days, all right? Um, For the past 30, 40 years... Uh, the phrase last days within Christian circles has been synonymous with antichrist, uh, you know, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, and so on and so forth. But the reality is, is the term, the phrase last days was around long before that. In fact, what is basically being described here is that the last days began right then. So that means, on a technical sense, for 2,000 years, the last days have been happening. Now, we can say that we might be in the last of the last days. Uh, it, you know, but we don't, we don't know that for certain. I mean, there could be another couple hundred years of world history. We really don't know. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back again. But the point of the matter is, is that this technical phrase, last days, is something that was used to describe this is God's new period, new time period, latter days when God was going to pour out his spirit and create a brand new community of people that operate, that act according to a brand new set of principles that that was unlike any other period of time in world history. And what Peter's saying is what you're watching, what you're witnessing, what you're swept up into is the promise that we've all been waiting for. God's spirit has come. It's beginning to move. We, we, this is the last stage of what Peter's saying. This is what God, what God has always promised. This is what every Jewish person had ever hoped for is now beginning to happen. And what Peter's saying is that all of this has to do and has begun right now. Second thing we see is then Peter, in around verse 22, shifts a little bit and says, uh, from men of Judea to now he says men of Israel. So this is a very specific form of addressing them, but yet still in some ways very impersonal. And he now then moves on, begins to quote from an Old Testament passage out of Psalm 16. And in this particular psalm, this is a psalm that's typically called messianic. So and the word messianic is kind of a big uh, word that basically just simply means the anointed one. Now, throughout, again, as I mentioned, uh, Jewish history, they had this hope that one day God would bring up this king. Now, again, the way that a king would be brought up into a place of high honor and high regard was they would oftentimes bring the king out in this procession. He would stand before a high priest. The high priest would take this big vat of oil. All right, So imagine this massive vat of oil. Imagine if you were up here and you were being appointed or anointed as king. The high priest would say, for example, that would be me. I would have this big vat of oil. You would come up here and I would literally pour this entire oil out all over you. That 
action would be described as anointing. You'd be anointed. And as that oil would run down your entire face, over your entire upper torso of your body, over your entire body, you are basically, in a sense, being enveloped in this oil, which in many ways was symbolic of God's dwelling presence with you, upon you, over you. Now, if you've ever had oil on you and you try to get it off, it's very difficult to get off. There's a purpose, I think, for that within that, is it's that you, you just can't get this substance off of you because it is a picture of God's presence being all upon you. So this is the idea. He's going to refer to now this messianic, this appointing or anointing of someone that is in the lineage of David. Again, uh, and then finally, thirdly, he gets very personal. And rather than addressing them as men of Judea or men of Israel, he addresses them as brothers. This is significant because in the second portion, Peter basically says, he says, look, you guys crucified Jesus. And some have actually read that throughout the history of the church and say, see, even Peter is somewhat anti-Semitic. He is against the Jews. And so therefore, Peter is basically indicting the Jewish people as the ones that killed Jesus. And yet, really, this could be further from the truth. Because what Peter's basically saying is, yes, you guys killed Jesus, but you did it ignorantly. You had no idea what you were actually doing. You were unaware of your actions. You, in other words, yes, you killed Jesus, but you did not know really who Jesus was that you were killing. And so the idea that Peter then summarizes this entire thing by basically using a very personalized word by saying, you guys are my brothers, is filled with warmth. In other words, it's filled with the sense of Peter's true intentions is that I don't want you to remain in a state of ignorance. I don't want you to remain unaffected by the power, the love of God. I want you to be brought in like family because that's who you are. I want you to know the greatness of this God that somehow you had a lapse of understanding and through in, within that lapse of understanding, you put to death this Christ. Look, the reality is, is that Jesus always, always was creating responses in people's hearts. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is that in reality, Jesus himself is the most amazing, shocking person who have ever walked our planet. If you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you will always observe is that whether they were the enemies of Jesus that ultimately wanted to put Jesus to death, or whether or not they were people that looked at Jesus and would worship him, whenever Jesus would say something, whenever Jesus would do something, there were always either people on one, two sides. Jesus was always polarizing the crowds, where people were either saying, because of what Jesus said, because of what Jesus did, we want to put him to death. But at the very same time, there are also those that were saying, because of what Jesus said, because of what Jesus did, we want to fall on our face and worship him. The thing about Jesus is he is so shocking. He shocks us out of our slumber. He shocks us out of our apathy. And like being shocked electrically, there are shock marks that Jesus leaves. Some of the marks that we see that Jesus left on the early disciples were love care for one another, because they were shocked by Jesus. And I've said this before, but the reality is, if you're Jesus, the Jesus that you claim to follow, the Jesus that you claim to worship, the Jesus that you claim to have given your heart to or prayed a prayer for a long time ago, if that Jesus does not shock you in a sense of worship, 
then it's very likely it's not the real Jesus. If that Jesus in any way, shape, or form just simply bores you to where the point where it's not that interesting, he's not too impressive, he's not too amazing, it's very likely it's not the real Jesus. The true Jesus always shocks us. And these people were shocked. And this is what we see in the storyline. In fact, why don't you look in your Bibles real quickly. Just go back a little bit at the beginning part of chapter 2. I'll show it to you. It says this in around verse 6. It says, and at the sound of this, the things that were beginning to happen, it says that they were all bewildered. Verse 7, it says, and they were amazed and they were astonished. And jump on down to about verse 12. It says, and they were all amazed and they were all perplexed, saying among themselves, What's going on? What does all this mean? And the point, that, again, that I would just simply reiterate is that when Jesus begins to work, when Jesus moves, when you have an encounter or some form of rea- reality check with this Jesus, he will shock you. He will either shock you by way of where you will join the crowd and saying, I hate this Jesus. I do not want my life to be affected, impacted, moved, influenced in any way, shape, or form. By this Jesus, and you will join those that will have attempted in times past to push him away into the margins, or you will fall on his feet, on your feet, and worship. That's what we see with this Jesus, and that's what we see happening here on this particular day. We see people absolutely shocked, amazed, moved, all because of what Jesus is beginning to do. So this brings us to some summary thoughts or statements with regard to this sort of overwhelming sweep of the sermon. And there's five of them. I'll just kind of go through them real quickly. One is that we see that the emphasis is upon God's spirit has actually come upon us or come to us. In other words, unlike in ancient times, um, God's spirit would every once in a while would come upon some of God's people. So there are occasions when David would receive the spirit and his spirit would come upon him. God's uh, enabling or empowering presence would come upon David. And maybe in a moment, David would write a psalm or something amazing would come out of David's mouth or come out of David's guitar. Something amazing would come out of David, period. But the point of the matter is that was described as God's spirit coming upon David. There were occasions when God's spirit would come upon a priest and a priest would perform some form of a duty and God's spirit would come upon him and, or a prophet. God's spirit would come upon a prophet and they would then begin to speak on behalf of God. So typically, uh, most of the times in the Old Testament, when God's Spirit would come upon people, it would be either a prophet, a priest, or a king. Rarely uh, would it come upon all people, if ever, all at the same time. Uh, So in other words, what we see first and foremost is that we see that God's Spirit has finally come. In other words, he makes all things new. God is in the process of making all things new. And that's what we see God's Spirit indicating or being indicated of or for with regard to this whole thing that God is moving in a brand new way. It's not like Old Testament times where God's spirit would come upon a few select, uniquely gifted individuals for a season, but now God's empowering presence would come upon all who call upon God's name. What that means is God's ability, God's potentiality to make all things new is always upon you. You understand that? That means that if you look at your life and you find yourselves overwhelmed by your own sin, by your own brokenness, overwhelmed by your own inabilities, dysfunctionalities, however you want to describe it, upon you, if you're in Christ, there's always the enabling, empowering presence of God to make all things new. What that means is you are not a slave 
to your fears. You are no longer a slave to your past. You're no longer a slave to the former sin of your life. You don't have to live in regret. You don't have to let the past define your present or your future. Jesus does. Because you have the Holy Spirit upon you. In other words, he makes all things new. The second thing we see is that the last days have been initiated. That's seems to be the point of what Peter is describing in the first section where he refers to the passage out of Joel. The idea here is that God has begun to move forward to expedite the world stage. And now it involves two things. One, the coming of God's spirit. But the second thing it involves is the fact that it brings into a clearer focus that one day God will come again. Jesus will come again as he prophesied. And he will judge the living and the dead. That's why the language in Joel is so sort of metaphorical and so rich. It's like, the moon will be turned to blood, and all these other crazy-sounding things are happening. Now, again, those could be literal, or it could just simply be metaphorical language to describe something that is so profound that has to do with God literally shaking the nations, God shaking things that seem to be unshakable. And think about it this way. I mean, we've lived in this experiment called America for about two, I mean, we haven't lived in it for 250 years. No one's that old, I don't think. But the point of the matter is, we've been a part of this experiment called America for about 250 years, collectively. We tend to think like America is immovable and unshakable. And do you understand how absolutely ludicrous that statement is to somehow think that America will always remain this great, amazing, powerful nation forever? Do you realize how many other nations in world history have had said the same thing, and yet they no longer exist except in the form of some relics of a bygone era? The point that Jesus seems to be making through Peter is that everything is beginning to move where God's spirit is being poured out on all flesh, all people, and yet it's all bringing things forward to a point where one day we will stand before this God that created all things and created you. We'll have to give an account for our lives. That's a humbling reality because some of us would rather just sleep in church. But the fact of the matter is, is if we understand who this God is and what he's calling us to, and we understand that he's actually inviting us into something that's so profound, so great, so life-changing, then we would recognize his love. So we see that not only one does God's spirit come upon us, but not only do we see that these last days have been initiated, but thirdly, we also see that God's king has actually arrived. So again, remember I mentioned that these ancient hopes of one day God's going to provide this king, the question has always been like, who is the king? Who's the one that's going to bring order to our chaos? Who's the one that's going to bring life to where there was nothing but death? What Peter's basically saying is that God's king's come. It's happened. We're not, we're not waiting for God's king to come any longer because it's finally been realized. And then third, it kind of dovetails into the fourth thing, which is, uh, and yet what, first of all, that God's king has arrived. But what Peter points out is that God's king has come, but we, didn't, we weren't aware of it. Collectively, as, as, as human beings, as a nation of Israel, we did not even know that God's kingdom has come. Because we actually, collectively as a nation, were guilty of what Isaiah said, that he was despised and rejected. Which means, in a personalized sense, we despised. And we rejected him. We shoved him off into a corner and said, don't speak to me. Don't tell me about life to come. And we crucified the king of glory is what Peter is basically saying. And then what we also see is that Peter points out and he makes this connection. He says, that king has come, but that king has come and he has a name. His name is 
Jesus, that this Jesus. And just listen to again how Peter describes it, and I'll wrap this up. Verse 36 says, Let the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. What I love about this is basically saying, look, the time, the season, the period, the chapter of your lives that was marked by ignorance has to come to an end at some point. And what Peter's basically giving is he's giving this invitation. It's time to let that season of ignorance to come to an end now. Because that Jesus that we're all aware of, that we know that we heard his messages, we know that 50 days earlier somebody was put to death by the name of Jesus. And that somebody that was put to death uh, did nothing but good throughout the land. He healed lepers, gave sight to the blind, raised dead people back to life, made food for 5,000, 4,000 different groups of companies of people. He did nothing but good all the time, and yet we killed him. And you guys all know that is what Peter's saying. You are all aware of the rumors about this guy Jesus. And what Peter's saying is that guy is the king. We all killed him. And what we're told in the last little section here is that they're actually all invited to enter in. And that leads us to the final thing I'll finish here. Which leads us really to the crowd's response. Or another way I think about it, subtitle is their entrance into the story. Verse 37 says this. Now when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what happened when they realized what happened? When they, when they realized like, yes, that guy, Jesus, that, that we, we, we loved and we hated. We despised and yet we were strangely curious of him. Yeah, we killed them. Peter says, that one is the king of all kings. That one is the one through whom, by whom, God is going to make this broken world right. And he says, they were cut to the heart. Now, I've got to remind you a little bit about who, who this audience is, because this is kind of fascinating to me. Because um, we're actually told the number, there's 3,000 of them that end up responding to this message. They end up, if you want to think of it this way, getting saved, coming forward, making a commitment. However you want to describe it. They were transformed and saved, renewed, regenerated, however you want to describe it, that day. That God was sweeping. He was, in other words, he enveloped 3,000 new people that were formally not a part of the story, formally trying to be emancipated from the story. He sweeps them into God's story, and they're made whole. So who are these guys? Well, these weren't sinners, prostitutes, meth addicts, porn downloaders, murderers. These are religious people. These are people that adhered to and obeyed and abided by God's moral law. These are people that would, if you were to ask them, do you want to break God's law? All of them would unanimously say, absolutely not. The, the greatest thing that we can do in life is not break God's law. So what happened here? What happened was their sin was personalized. They began to realize that what took place in them rejecting Jesus was not just some sort of strange abstraction out there or offending some sort of superpower in the universe. In other words, what happened was, is they went from just simply seeing sin as being breaking God's moral law to really being breaking God's heart. And it changed them. 
it went from being this abstraction to being this personal reality. Like we have crucified God's king. We're guilty of it. We've denied him. We've despised and rejected the very gracious attempts and actions of God towards us. God's maneuvering towards us. We pushed him away. And once they came heart to heart with that, they were cut to the heart. And it says, they turned to Peter and like, what, what should we do? Peter's response is, repent and be baptized. The word repent basically means to turn away from, if you want to think of it in the context of a story, turn away from the old stories that were once ruling, governing, influencing, guiding, leading your life. Turn away from those things and turn to the one who makes all things new. Uh, in other words, to turn away from all these old allegiances that promise much and always fail to deliver. That really always ended in superficiality. Turn away from those things. To turn away from, if you want to get more uh, evangelistic in that context, turn away from a life of sin, if you really want to look at it that way, and turn to the life of God that forgives sin. Turn away from a life that leads towards offenses to God and towards others and turn to the God that forgives our offenses. That's what Peter says. I'm inviting you guys into this story. Will you come? Recently read um, a little, a few snippets from a quote from C.S. Lewis. And you guys already know that. He's like one of my favorite authors. But in this little story, this essay, it's, uh, it's called An Experiment on Criticism. And really in, in this story, if, uh, he was helping people to learn how to critique art, all forms of art, whether it be music or, uh, you know, pictures or paintings or whatever, or even literary types of form of art. And throughout this book, he's really trying to help people to think about how, how do we think about art? Uh, how do we uh, uh, really enter into it and let it speak to us? Because if you think about it, there's a lot of people that really don't, like, know how to appreciate art, right? There's some people that are just like, I just have no appreciation for art. So they're, like, uber critical of everything that's, like, artistic. Um, but the point of the matter is what C.S. Lewis is trying to do is help people to, like, appreciate it. And he's got this really great, great quote, and I want to read it to you because I think there's some great parallels to the gospel as well. So listen to what he says. He says, the first demand that any work of art makes upon us is surrender. He goes on to say, look, listen, and receive. Get yourself out of the way. There's no good asking whether the work before you deserves such surrender, for until you surrender, you cannot possibly find out. Really, he goes on to say, find out how beautiful it is. Because... If you're the type of person that just simply comes up to a piece of art and you're already critical of it, you're already like, this is ridiculous. What he's saying is that you're not, you're not letting art do what art is intended to do, which is to bring you into the picture. If you need a more graphic image, if you've ever seen The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the movie, all right, by C.S. Lewis, it's this great little scene. If you've never seen it, I'll tell you, um, where it kind of starts out at the beginning of the movie. There's this big painting on a wall of a ship. Um, Dawn Treader is what it's called. And in the storyline, you have... Uh, these kids sitting on a bed, and they're kind of looking at the picture, and they're just trying to make sense of it and figure it out. And all of a sudden, this image, this picture on the wall actually comes to life, and it becomes so living and so beautiful, so amazing, it literally sweeps them into this, it becomes this portal into an old, another world, into Narnia. That's the gospel. And the gospel is this, like, work of God, this action on God's behalf for you, towards you, that says, will you enter into my story? Will you 
allow me to rewrite what for you has been set in stone, which what for you was once defined your life according to brokenness or uh, defilement or sin or shame or guilt or whatever form of brokenness that has literally defined your life. Would you allow me access to your heart to rewrite your story, to change it? What does it look like when God becomes king? It looks like him rewriting your story. It looks like him giving you a new name. It looks like him washing your past away. It looks like him rewiring your past, which is probably defined by guilt or regret. It looks like him taking your future and rather than being defined by anxiety and stress and worry, saying, be at rest. I'm, I'm, I'm your father. I hold the whole thing called your life in my hands. It looks like looking at this piece of art and saying, I want to surrender to it. Look, listen, and receive. That's what Peter says. You got to repent, turn from all other subordinate, superficial storylines, and enter into this story that I'm sharing with you. It has to do with a crucified, risen, exalted king that has done the most astoundingly beautiful work on your behalf, but you will never understand or appreciate it to its extent until you actually enter into that place of surrender and give yourself entirely to it. And once you do that, until you do that, you could never fully enter into its value. You're just an art critic. The call to gospel is one that says, by nature, welcomes you into it. And that's what I want to do now. I'm going to invite you into that. And we're going to respond. We're going to sing. The way that we respond all the time is by way of lifting up our voices, singing. We partake of communion is another way. We have a little slide to kind of give some little background examples of what this looks like. We partake of communion. We have communion in the front. Communion can be taken by yourself, or you can take it together with a group of people, all right? Roommates, family members, maybe a row, because uh, really communion is a way of celebrating something that God has done within the community, whereby God has been broken for us through Jesus so that we who are broken can be made whole. We'll sing. We'll respond. And one of the things we've been saying all along is that response is really just giving our entire whole to God because God gave his entire whole to us, his greatest gift to us. We, by way of love, give back ourselves to him. We do this by way of singing. We lift up our hands, and one of the things I often say to you is what this could look like is simply you looking at the posture, not only of your heart, but also looking at the posture of your body. It's the posture of your sum total, one that is reflective of giving God everything. So we're going to respond. So why don't we respond right now by way of let's all stand and uh, get our hearts right, consider who God is. Because look, at the end of the day, if Peter's preaching or answer or address holds any weight of truth to it at all, then what this means above me and everything else is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a great guy, he's not just somebody that does miracles, he is by definition king. That means, by definition, we are subjects. And we will either be subjects that scrutinize 
criticize or try to figure out how we can accessorize this king into our lives. And you will never know salvation if that's you. Because you will always be just simply an art critic. That's all you are. Or you can be someone that looks at this king and says, he is king, and I'm a subject. And I fall on my face before this king, and I give him everything. That, by definition, is surrender. That, by definition, is entering into his reign. His reign that brings life for death. His reign that brings cleansing for your defilement. His reign that brings healing for your brokenness. His reign that brings order for your chaos. If he is really king, do you really think we have any space to criticize, to critique him? If anything, we owe him everything. And that's what worship is. That's what we're responding right now is. It's, it's coming to God just saying, God, you're, you're everything. And I need you. So let's respond. Let's lift up our voices. Let's use our bodies as these instruments. It's one of the reasons why we raise our hands. It's, it's a way of, it's, it's, it's a posture that just says, God, I'm empty-handed. You have everything. I come to you and I raise my hands to you. It's funny how we can get so excited and exuberant about football games and music and all sorts of other things that are awesome. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to, like, giving our all to this King of kings and Lord of lords, we're oftentimes a little bit skittish. We're like, I don't want to go crazy. But if he is really a king, isn't he worthy of literally giving everything and literally going, quote, unquote, crazy for? Of course. So let's, let's respond to him, okay? God, thank you for your great love. And right now we want a posture that reflects who you are. So let's sing. There's some rugs in the front. If you just want to come out from where you're sitting and just get on your knees before God or sit down before God, it's fine. Please do it. It's just a way of just allowing for a fuller expression of your posture. Uh, partake of communion. It's in the front and in the back. Let's sing.